It's the parable of the lost sons. Um, I've renamed it that for our sakes, but it's the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to consider it over the course of a couple of weeks. And you know how when you write a research paper, um, you have to cite your sources, right? You've got a footnote as you go along or do the bibliography at the end. And that's very important. Apparently you'll go to jail if you don't cite your sources. And so I want to cite my sources on the front end because this one is such a tricky one for me. I've taught this passage a lot over the years in lots of different contexts. And I actually don't know when I'm quoting from someone and when I'm not. That's how much like I've learned from other people on this passage. So I'm going to cite everyone that I've learned from about this passage. And then I will quote some as we go along. But there are times where I may be quoting somebody and really even don't know it. And so it's people like Henry Nowen, who's a Catholic priest who did a lot of work on this parable. And I'll talk about him more next week. A guy named Kenneth Bailey, who I'll talk about tonight, who went and lived in the Palestinian setting where these... Um, parables were told and just studied them in their original context. A lot of great insight there. Um, Tim Keller has done a lot of writing on this, but he based his writing on those two guys as well. Um, and then just a lot of my pastor buddies that I've studied this story with over the years. Sometimes I'll just even be quoting them as we dialogue. So there's my sources so I don't go to jail. Um, all right, here's the passage. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1 and 2. And we start there, by the way, because it it shows who Jesus is talking to. And then we're going to skip down to the third story to this particular audience. Now the tax collector and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told two stories, and then he tells this story. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. 
and never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came. He's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand forever. For many people, this story doesn't sound much like a parable. It sounds more like a biography. You've been there. You've, you've been in this place. You identify so quickly with this prodigal son. Maybe you're in the story right now, far from home, wandering and wondering if you can return. Or if you return, what would happen if you did? For others of you, you hear the story and you think, that poor guy should have never left home. He had it coming, right? I'm glad I've never been rebellious like that. Well, if you think that, you're in this story too. We all are. We're all here. The story isn't just about one lost son, but two. Tonight we'll consider the first exclusively, and then next week we'll turn our attention to the second one. But let me just say that this isn't just a story about two boys. It's a story about a loving father. In telling this parable, Jesus wants us to see that the message of the gospel is so much bigger so much more far-reaching and even more scandalous than we ever thought or imagined. Because at the heart of the gospel is a story of a father who doesn't care what people think about him. And he will do whatever it takes to be with his lost sons. And this can be so life-changing for us. So let's start with a younger son. We'll consider this outline as his request, his ruin, and then his return as we walk through the story. You heard the request in verse 12. The younger son said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. So the younger son of the father goes to his dad and basically asks for his inheritance, which is problematic because his dad's still alive. And... He's asking for land to be divided. He's asking for his share of the property. And in this context, land um, denotes livelihood. And so he's asking his father to really give up himself for his son. But the bigger problem is this, this is what Kenneth Bailey brings out in one of his books. He's done all this research on parables in their original context. He literally has went, he lived in the lands where Jesus walked and told these stories. And he's interviewed people about kind of their own history in the culture and what these parables would have meant in the original context. And see, so he's gone around and here's what he said. He says, for over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan about this son's request of the inheritance while the father is still living. And he says, the answer has been emphatically the same. The conversation always goes like this. Has anyone in your village ever made such a request? Never. Could anyone ever make a request like that? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him. Why? This request means that his father, or that he wanted his father to die. 
The son wants to be cut off and lost from the family. He wants complete freedom and independence. As Keller puts it in his book called The Prodigal God, he says that the son wants the father's stuff, but he doesn't want the father. He wants independence. He's done with his family. And he's willing to consider the father dead in order to get that. So how does the father respond? In the face of such humiliation, both personal and public, in an unthinkable act against what Ken Bailey discovered, this father decides to endure the pain on himself. To endure the pain of lost honor and rejected love. And he maintains his affection for his son while giving him what he wants. He gives him over to his desires. And he lets him go. And so off the son goes in freedom, finally, independently, to do what he's always wanted to do. And so where did it lead him? You know the story to eventual ruin. And we read about that in 13 through 16, about the sons living in the distant country. And Jesus says that he squanders his property in, in reckless living. Squanders, I've always thought, is a great term. We need to be able to find other sentences to put that in. It's a great word that we only use in this parable. He squanders his property. Some thought that this meant that he had kind of given himself over to sensualness. And that's what the elder brother accuses him of later. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. Most translations of this word, reckless living, would carry this, these overtones of expensive or luxurious or wasteful living. The picture is that he lived for himself. He bought what he wanted to buy. He did what he wanted to do. He declared his independence and he lived out his independence in whatever way made sense. But the problem is he came across a famine. Both a famine in the land and a famine in his wallet. And he ran out. And he comes to the end of himself and he says, I will do anything. And so that's how he found himself eating pig food or at least wanting to eat pig food because no one was giving him anything else. And it's in the midst of this famine that's engulfed the son's life that he begins to think fondly of his home again. Now, for what it's worth, I don't necessarily think that's the, the full repentance in this story. I don't think that this is like his moment of like, I'm ready to go home and be with my father. And in fact, that comes out through the story. It's definitely sorrow. It's definitely a realization that this isn't working. And that can lead to honest repentance, but that's not where he's at yet. Where he is now is he's coming to the end of himself. And this is so important for us. We need to hear this because we need to hear that turning toward God doesn't necessarily mean that we have everything rightly articulated. Or even that we understand the depth of our rebellion or sin fully or even much at all. It may be as simple as the son's realization that this is not working. And I wonder if some of you have been there or if you are even now reaching that point where you're saying this isn't working. Um, being in ministry, I've had you know, the privilege of being a part and seeing so many stories where people talk and they say they came to this point where this wasn't working. And one of the most extreme examples, and this really is an extreme example, but one of the most encouraging and extreme examples I've experienced was uh, a guy that was a member of our old church when I was a pastor in Utah before I did RUF. Uh, at a church near Salt Lake City. And there was a guy named Jeremy. 
Jeremy is about my age and an awesome guy. And the more I got to know him, the more he told me his backstory. And his backstory was simply this. He was a guy from North Carolina who had these dreams of moving out west. And he grew up in a Christian home, grew up going to church. He memorized scripture, went to a Christian school in North Carolina. Sounds familiar, right, to many of you, or South Carolina. And so he had this dream, though. He wanted to be out west. He wanted independence. And so he moved to L.A. because that's where dreams are born or die. And so he went for one or the other. And so he started pursuing all sorts of things. But for him, he traced it back to kind of early decisions with alcohol. This isn't like don't go drinking sermon. It's not one of those things. But for him, he traces a lot of his early decisions to he was drinking a lot in high school. And that led to smoking weed. And that led to some other drugs. And by the time he got to L.A., he became totally addicted to some horrible, hardcore things. And he was really out of his mind. And as a result of this addiction and dependency, he became homeless. So now he's this homeless addict in L.A., living on the streets, literally living on the streets um, in L.A. And one of the stories I remember so vividly is when he talked about his mom, that he had lost contact with his mom, mostly on purpose, but then he never tried to reestablish contact. And for months and maybe for years, I don't remember how long the story was, um, the timeline, but his mom would go on the obituaries online in L.A., looking for her son's name. Like, that's where he was. Through some miracles and the Lord's intervention, Jeremy came to the end of himself. And he came to a point where he said, this isn't working. It's not working. And he got back in contact with his mom, and his mom got him some help. And now Jeremy, it's one of these redemption stories, but Jeremy still struggles in lots of ways. Um, He's married now, and he has a child now. Um, But his life has been certainly affected by those early years. But that's a redemption story, right? Coming to the end of yourself. It's an extreme example, but I do wonder, have you experienced something like that before? Many of you are in your first semester of college, and you've already hit that place. You're five, six weeks in, and you kind of pursued all the things that you thought college would offer. And you wanted to live out the independence, and you wanted to live out the freedom, and so you did all the things that you thought that meant. And and you've come to that place where you said, this isn't working. And you're right. It's not working. It was all hype. And you felt tricked. And you see it's not working. Some of you, uh, maybe you're not a freshman, but this has been your story all along. The way you've done relationships, it's not working. The way that you've done studying and career ambition, it's not working. The way that you've done responsibility isn't working. The way you've done your life isn't working. and You've come to the end of yourself at different times. And people might not know it or they might know it. Your end of yourself might be very public and everyone knows. Or it might be very private and no one knows. It's just you. But you've experienced this. And so you're wondering if you would be welcome if you return home. That's where the son is. Okay, That's where he is in our story. He comes to the end of himself. And he realizes that he's out of money, that he's far from home, and so he comes up with this magnificent plan. Maybe I can work for my dad and pay him back. You know that's his plan, right? Comes out in 18 and 19 as like he's rehearsing. It's almost like he, I picture this, I may be wrong, and I may get this from the Jesus Storybook Bible, I don't know. But I think he's looking in, in the, uh, the water by the pigs, and he's staring down in the water, almost rehearsing into a mirror. And he says, 
he comes up with this plan like rehearsing. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I feel like it's this rehearsal. And so that's his plan. He wants to now come back as a servant. Now, this is where another contextual thing is helpful that I've learned. A servant is not the same thing as a slave. And it's certainly not the same thing as a son. But a servant is this idea that he would be hired back almost as a, a, a worker who's getting wages on the property. They would live on the estate. They would make a wage. Keller says that the rabbis taught that if you offended the community, you didn't make an apology, but you made a restitution. You try to pay back the father. Not necessarily be welcomed back in the family. That's not even the goal. The goal is to pay back the family. So his intention is to come back, make restitution, begin paying his father back for what still belonged to him, even though the father had freely given it to him. In short, here's the point. The son has determined that he will save himself again. He doesn't want grace. He wants to work it out. And with his pride intact, he intends to go back and to order his father to start paying me so that I can pay you. You see, at this point, he's actually still wanting to be independent, but now it just comes out in a different form. One was a rebellion, and now he's wanting to work it out. It's still independence. He doesn't want grace. It's really difficult to receive grace, isn't it? I want you to see if this is true of your life. Think about a moment when you receive a compliment. Not a compliment that you fish for. Like, do you really like this new shirt that I've got? Not one of those. But one that's like just comes to you. And someone says something so kind about you, not about like something you do or look like, but like about your person. How do you respond? Do you kind of cringe a little bit? Do you dismiss it, like shy away? Do you like return it? Oh, no, you are. You're you are. Like <laughs> the reason we do that, and I really think this is why, because we don't like grace. We can't handle it. Here's a couple examples. There's somebody like this in our family. It's not my wife, so don't start looking back there. I would, she's here tonight. I wouldn't do that about her if she's here. But there's somebody else in our family, in our extended family, who it's almost like a joke. It's like a joke between me and Kelly to compliment her, to see if she can take it. She can never take it. If we say to her, that was a really great meal. Thank you so much. She will say, well, I've been up since, I've been working on it since 10 a.m. this morning. Okay. Or if you say, like, you look really nice today. Well, I was going to wear something different, but it was dirty and I didn't have time to clean it. Like, do you know those people? I can be like that a lot in my own life. It's false humility is what it is. And, and, or it's trying to kind of make up for something. I was like this a lot with our old neighbor, Mike. I've told you about Mike before. Let me tell you about Mike again. So Mike was the guy, my next door neighbor in Alabama, who would just always do stuff for us. Like he would help me out in so many different ways. He was the guy who would always have the right tool for the problem that I had. He would always be giving me advice, advice about my electrical problems. He would come over and fix things in our house all the time. And um, he would give advice even when I didn't ask for it. That's how nice he was. That's a joke. But here's the thing. I always felt like I owed Mike. 
Like I always felt like I owed him. I couldn't take his niceness in my life. But the problem is like I literally couldn't do anything for Mike at all. Like I couldn't, I couldn't fix anything in his house, that's for sure. I couldn't give him any advice. I couldn't pay it off. And so like literally the only thing I could ever do for Mike was like check his mailbox when he would leave for the weekend, which would only happen like twice a year. And, and he would ask me to do that, and I felt really good about doing that. And so sometimes I would be like, hey, Mike, you leaving this weekend? You want me to check your mail? And he would be like, no, that's creepy. So, but, like, do you experience that where you just can't tell? You know what that is? We don't like grace. We like making it even. We like being in charge. We like other people submitting to us, but we don't like grace. We don't like the gift. And here's the problem. When we have a difficult time receiving grace, and many of us do, we have a very difficult time receiving the deep message of the gospel. Because it is a message of grace. More often we feel that we have to pay God off. That we have to pay Him back and set things even, as if that's possible. And so we don't like grace. That's the younger son, headed home, Every intention of entering the working ranks, in doing so, he will serve, he will work, and he will remain independent of his family and maintain control of his life because that feels safer. But as we look at the younger son's reception by his father, his plan goes beautifully wrong. His return comes up in verses 20 through 24, and this is one of the most dramatic scenes, I think, in all of Scripture. I do want to read it again. And he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The text is amazing because it says that when the father saw him, he was filled with compassion. Like that word makes no sense in the story. Compassion. Are you serious? Your son who just wished you dead who you embarrassed yourself for, that you lost your land for, that has ruined your family name, that son is coming home after he squandered it. It's a great word. And the father felt compassion. That makes no sense. And so what this drama points us to, and the original hearers certainly is that what seems so wrong about this point in the story is what makes it so right and shows how pure the Father actually is. Again, this is Kent Bailey. He says that this compassion specifically includes an awareness of the gauntlet that the boy would have to run through in his community or in his village. Imagine the public disgrace and shame that he has defaced and disgraced his father and the entire village by selling the property. And potentially now Gentile landowners are moving in. And then the father literally comes and runs the gauntlet for him. 
We have to understand here. Here's Bailey again. He says, Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. (laughs) He says, children ran. Youth ran. Sometimes women ran. But men, owners of estates, they did not run. Aristotle even said, great men never run in public. (laughs) Yet we see this father running to his lost son. And when he gets to him, he embraces him and kisses him, which is a sign in that time denoting reconciliation (laughs) and forgiveness right there on the spot. So here's this scene, the father embracing his son, having just offered forgiveness and reconciliation. And the son then starts his speech. Do you hear it? He starts his speech, Father, forgive me. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I want to... And he's cut off. He didn't get to finish his speech. Because that's when the father said, let's throw a party. He cuts him off. He says, bring him the family robe, which was the family-like festival robe, which would have been so important. Bring him the ring, which would have been the family ring. Bring him the shoes. Yet showing again and again that he's not going to be welcomed as a servant. What he's saying is, you are my son. You're not my servant. What is this guy experiencing? He's experiencing grace. He's being restored back to the family and back to the community. I don't think anyone can summarize it better than Mumford and Sons on their first album. It seems that all my bridges have been burned, but that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. That's a great summary of exactly what this man is experiencing. He had experienced total rejection out in the far country. And here in the place where everyone expects him to receive total rejection, he receives total acceptance. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I think one of the most moving truths of this scene is that the son pursued riches. And he pursued freedom and he pursued purpose. He was looking for these things and so he left home. But all along, the riches were offered to him there. All along. He never had to leave in the first place to get exactly what he wanted. He was looking for things that were already provided for him in the Father's house. The robe, the ring, the shoes, these are all pictures of the Father's riches for him. They were there all along. And so how often do we go out looking, searching for purpose? Looking for meaning for pleasure, for security, for happiness, for acceptance. When all along, those things are offered from your Father and so much more. You may be familiar with Rembrandt's depiction of this story or Rembrandt if you're from somewhere else, but he's Rembrandt in South Alabama. Rembrandt is, of course, the 17th century Dutch artist who is known for these incredible oil paintings. Um, And two of of the things I've learned about Rembrandt is that he sometimes focused on Bible stories. Literally, he has a whole series of different Bible stories being depicted, but he also does a lot of self-portraits. A lot of you have studied art history or maybe your art majors have come across these things, obviously. 
And one of the most famous ones is, is the one based on this story, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, I have a very small print of this, a very small and dark print of this by my desk in my office. And uh, I looked at it a bunch this week as I was thinking through this parable. And it's beautiful. There's these six characters. The focus is given primarily to the two in the kind of bottom left. And you've got the father there embracing the son. The prodigal had just returned and the father welcomes him home. The son is sort of kneeling at the father's feet. He's clearly wrecked and worn out. He's basically down to his underwear. And even his underwear has kind of has all these holes through it. And, and he's just a mess. His head is shaven. He's filthy. His feet are all scuffed and beaten. One has a sandal and the other is completely bare and it's bleeding. You can really stare at every single segment of this painting and and get something different out of it. One of the most interesting stories I've read about Rembrandt's depiction is that you know how I said he's famous for a couple of different things. He would do Bible stories and sometimes he would do self-portraits. Some art historians um, would argue that this is a combination of both. That it's a story in which Rembrandt finds himself. We don't know for sure if he sees himself as the prodigal. But 30 years before this painting, he painted another one called The Prodigal in the Brothel. And that one, and this is not argued at all, certainly is a self-portrait. And it's a picture of a young Rembrandt where he has long curly hair and he has a drink in one hand and a woman in the other. And it's kind of a painting of his back and he's kind of looking over his shoulder like a picture is being taken. And he's going into this room where the curtains are being lowered, where he's going into this brothel with this woman. Rembrandt had a very difficult life. He was married, uh, and nearly all of his children died before he did. And then his wife died. And at some point he was remarried and then ended up in all this kind of legal issues, and he lost a lot of money. And at the end of his life he is broke and despondent. And it's in the final years, literally within the last two years of his life, that he paints the return of the prodigal just before his death. And you can see the youngest son in that painting with his head slightly tilted, laid exhaustedly against his father's chest. And some say that that's the face of Rembrandt. His curly hair is gone. His body is worn out. Rembrandt found himself in the story. Have you? Are you the one exhausted from all the running? Weary from what you thought the world had to offer? You were dog-tired and simply ready to come home. But like the youngest son, you're scared. And you don't know how things will go. You don't know what kind of welcome you'll receive or if it will be a welcome at all. If this is your self-portrait, let me encourage you to lift your eyes To lift your eyes and see the loving father who runs to you when fathers didn't run. Let me encourage you to lift your ears and hear the father cut you off in mid-sentence when you say you're going to work it out and he says my son is home. Let me encourage you to lift your arms and to fall into his when they are extended and embracing you. Let me encourage you to lift your heart and hear him say, For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See the loving father welcome you home. 
And you can know that you no longer have to run until you come to the end of yourself. You can return home even now. You can say, Father, I'm sorry. Will you receive me? And he will receive you. In fact, if you respond that way, you can know that it's because of his kind, gracious, initiating love that is drawing you already. And and let me just say this. I tell students this all the time, and I've told many of you this already this semester. If you come to those points in your life where you feel like you come to the end of yourself, or even you just have glimpses, where you see something in your life that you just absolutely hate, you hate it. You keep doing that thing. You keep having that conversation. You keep hurting that person. You keep going back and going back, and you hate it about yourself. Do you know what that is? That is God's grace showing you that it isn't working. And that is Him already drawing you near. And so when you see sin in your life, you're seeing something that's not working. You need to see that the thing that's not working is pointing you to the Father who will give you everything that you've ever wanted. And He welcomes you, not as a slave or a servant, but as a son and a daughter. So how does he do this? Yes, it's by grace, but it comes at a cost. And we'll talk about more of this next week. But someone had to give something up in order for there to be a party. And the ironic twist of Jesus' story is, do you know who paid the ultimate cost for this party to be thrown? It's the elder brother. Part of his inheritance is being spent for the sake of the celebration. Don't forget there's another character in the story, the father's eldest son. Another figure hiding in the shadows of Rembrandt's painting and the elder brother stands in the background. Bitter, resentful, jealous, full of self-righteous indignation that this father would ever welcome such a rebellious child. And if you haven't found yourself in tonight's story, you might find yourself in that one. But here's the reality. The Father loves them both. And the Father in Jesus' story points us to the Father of Jesus' life who welcomes sinners and throws a party when they come home. And how do we come home? Only by trusting our lives to the care of God the Son who left His home. Not out of rebellion, but out of obedience. He didn't squander His inheritance, but He gave it away to people like you and me who run and run and run until we come to the end of ourselves. But he, Jesus, came to the end of himself, didn't he? By taking on all of our running when he took on the cross and he was treated like a criminal, like an adulterer, like a thief, like an addict, like you and me. And he took on our sins so that we could be given a new identity. Bring out the robe. Bring out the ring and put it on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Put a crown on his head. Let's have a feast. No longer a slave to sin, but a son and daughter of the living God. And then Jesus returned home to his father's embrace to prepare a place for us to call home one day too. And when our journey ends and we are welcomed once again by the father who loves so deeply and more scandalously than we could ever imagine. That's the truth of the gospel. 
I end with this. When Kelly and I got home this weekend from fall conference where we got to share the weekend with many of you, uh, we were tired, as you were. We were ready to be in our own beds. You know that feeling? And Kelly said, as we were literally unloading the car, she said this, and I was like, that's it. That's the story of the prodigal son. I literally said that because that's what it is to live with a pastor. (laughs) But she just said this, and she's so right. She said, you always realize that your home is really your home when you leave it and come back to it. Christian, come home. Be with your father. See what riches are there for you. They're so much better than you could have ever imagined. So much more than you'll find anywhere else. He offers you everything you could ever want. In fact, he's running to you even now. Arms extended, welcoming you home, saying, For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Come celebrate with me. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would draw us near with your grace. Help us to see the love of the Father. Jesus, thank you that you ran the gauntlet for us. You took on the shame that we deserve. You took on the penalty that we deserve. We squander in so many ways, but you redeem. You share your inheritance. We are able to be called sons and daughters of the living God because, Jesus, you took on the penalty for all of our running. We give you thanks. We pray that that would lead us to a life of worship, lead us to a life of contentment, lead us to a life of service. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.